I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. In this episode, we travel to Washington, D.C. to the National Press Club to discuss Carpenter versus United States, a debate co-hosted with the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society about a Supreme Court case that may determine the future of digital privacy. Joining us to discuss these important questions and more are two of America's leading scholars of Fourth Amendment law. Orrin Kerr is Fred C. Stevenson Research Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School and a nationally recognized scholar of criminal procedure and computer crime. Alex Abdo is a senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute. In 2015, he argued the closely watched appeal that resulted in the Second Circuit invalidating the NSA's cell phone records program. Let's hear what our guests had to say. So this is a case called U.S. versus Carpenter, and it involves uh, a guy whose movements were tracked in public for 127 days. The government did that by issuing a subpoena from the for the geolocational records from his cell phones that made it possible to see which cell phone towers he was near. And using this geolocational data, they were able to conclude that he had indeed committed a series of armed robberies, including armed robberies of stores that sold cell phones. And after concluding that he was a cell phone robber using his cell phone data, they indicted and convicted him. He objected that the search was invalid because the subpoena that was issued under a federal law called the Stored Communications Act to get this data wasn't uh, issued according to the standards required by a valid judicial warrant. And as a result, uh, Carpenter said that this search violated his rights under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which protects the right of the people to be secure in our persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. So that's the text that we're going to be interpreting today. The Supreme Court has said a bunch of important things about the Fourth Amendment, but there are maybe three or so really leading cases that I just want to put on the table right now. In the 1970s, the court decided an important case called Smith versus Maryland. And that was a case where a guy made a series of phone calls. And using, if I've got it right, a pen register technology, the government was able to reconstruct the numbers that he dialed. And the court said that he had no expectation of privacy in those numbers because he'd voluntarily surrendered the numbers to a third party, namely the telephone company. And therefore, the government could seize them without a warrant. And one big question in this case is whether that third party doctrine applies to a case where there's the collection of a whole lot of geolocational information uh, that can reconstruct our movements in a really granular way. More recently, in a case called US versus Jones, the government tracked a suspect's movements using a global positioning system device. And they uh, stuck it on the bottom of his car and tracked his movements in public for a month. That might sound a lot like this case, but there was an important difference. Uh, the police had to walk onto the guy's driveway and physically affix the device on the bottom of his car. And based on that, uh, a major uh, the court held in an opinion by Justice Scalia that any physical seizure with the intent of collecting information triggered the warrant requirement. That decision was unanimous, and there was a concurring opinion by Justice Samuel Alito, who said that physical trespass wasn't necessary, and any virtual search that could reveal a lot about our movements in public, including our intimate associations and our thoughts and our political views, might require a warrant. And then finally, there was a case called US versus Riley, where the police wanted to search a guy's cell phone after they arrested him. 
And the government said our cell phones are just like cigarette packets, which the government is allowed to open uh, if someone is arrested because they might contain contraband. But the court unanimously rejected that argument. And in an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court said, our cell phones are nothing like cigarette packets. They can require our hopes, our dreams, our intimate associations. They can reveal so much about us that to search them without a warrant is like the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution. And Chief Justice Roberts quoted James Otis as saying at the moment that the British king issued a suspicionless warrant for information. At that moment, the child revolution was born. OK, so that's my uh, totally nonpartisan summary. And I now want uh, to take a straw poll about wh uh, what you feel based on what you've heard so far about the case. Do you believe that reconstructing someone's movements in public for 127 days by subpoenaing the geolocational information from his cell phones violates the Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable searches or seizures of our persons, houses, papers, or effects? Who believes the Fourth Amendment is violated in this case? And who believes that it is not? Wonderful. That's a good mix of views. It's not quite 50-50. I saw a slight majority in favor of a violation, but it's, uh, there's clearly a division. And that's good, because as you're about to hear from our debaters uh, who disagree strongly about this case, uh, this is, as Oren called it, a hard case. Oren, you uh, called it a hard case. You filed a brief in the case. Start by amplifying anything you would like to about my description of the facts, including telling our audience how granular is the ge geolocational information revealed by these cell phone pings, and why is it or is it not like a GPS device? Great. Well, thank you, Jeff, for uh, the invitation to be here, and to Alex uh, for being here. I've been a fan of, of both of your work, and I've never actually met Alex until today. So that was uh, a nice thing to be able to do after interacting online for a long time. Uh, so let me first say that everyone agrees that there should be legal limits on government access to historical cell site records. Uh, there's a federal statute. It's not a subpoena standard. It's the uh, Stored Communications Act has a specific and articulable fact standard. Uh, that Congress enacted in 1994 that says if the government wants to get historical cell site records or any other stored non-content account records for internet accounts or telephone accounts, they have to go to a federal judge, they have to make the case based on specific and articulable facts that the evidence to be obtained is material to an ongoing investigation. Uh, and everybody agrees that there should be some limits and the statute is, is there. Many states, uh, I think eight or nine states at this point, have enacted a higher threshold, a warrant standard, uh, as a matter of statutory law for their own law enforcement access. So everybody agrees that you know, this isn't a debate about whether there should be any limits on government access to historical cell site records. This is a debate as to which institutions of government should be the ones that put those limits uh, on government access. Should it be the legislature? Uh, which has traditionally uh, asserted this role, or should it be the courts? Uh, uh, so the idea is maybe we should have, I think, Jeff, you called it a, a, a revolution, or transforming the role of the Fourth Amendment. So the Fourth Amendment should now limit this thing, which traditionally has been up, uh, up to statutes. And I think the uh, existing traditional approach of having this be a matter of statutory law, the limits be imposed by statute, at whatever standard, and we can talk about whether the standard is a matter of policy, should be the current Stored Communications Act standard, or maybe the warrant approach uh, that, that some have wanted and that the House Judiciary Committee has had, I think, five different hearings about over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, but the real question is, which institution of government is providing these limits? Uh, and uh, in terms of the 
uh, detail of these records, not very detailed. So I, uh, let me also uh, challenge some of the way you framed this. You know, following a person, their movements over 127 days, it sounds really, really invasive. Although the record in this case and other similar cases suggests that the information the government reveals is not nearly as invasive as that. Uh, so first, the government never proves a case based on historical cell site records. These are records that providers generate in the ordinary course of business. They use it to optimize their network. Uh, they create these records. These are the records of which cell towers were used to connect a call when the phones were on and communications were coming to and from the phone. The cell companies keep these records as to where the towers were. It helps them with their network. The, the record in Carpenter suggests, I think, I think the, uh, just a little bit of testimony, suggesting it's within a mile or two, a mile and a half or two. Uh, so it's basically maybe the neighborhood that somebody was in or the part of town that somebody was in. It, the records don't show uh, what block they were on. They don't show what house a person uh, was inside. They don't show what room they were in. They're not, it's not GPS type uh, uh, records that are showing exactly where somebody is over time. Instead, it's when a communication comes in or out, a phone call comes in or out, or a text message comes in or out, we get a record as to the neighborhood, essentially, of where the cell tower was. We know where the tower is, and we assume that probably the person was with their phone, and the phone would have been somewhere in that neighborhood of you know, a mile or, or, or two. So um, these are location records, uh, yes. But there are a lot of records are location records in that sense. So if you think about it, credit card records, uh, automatic license plate readers, uh, bank records, a lot of times records can reveal where somebody is located. In fact, the traditional phone calls would reveal where someone's located exactly, because you'd know where the phone was. Uh, these are records about w what neighborhood a person is in. Traditionally, the Fourth Amendment rule would be you only get Fourth Amendment protection if uh, you're, you're uh, in a place that is protected by a reasonable expectation of privacy and you've not revealed that information, exposed it to outsiders. The traditional rule, which got dubbed the third party doctrine, which I think is really the uh, exhibiting a subjective expectation of privacy test, is that when you reveal information to a third party, you give up your Fourth Amendment rights against that information. What this would mean in this context is when you hire a cell phone company to deliver your calls, so you don't have to go out into public and, and, and travel to communicate with somebody, you're essentially creating a third party eyewitness who can testify to the government as to what information they have about how the call was delivered on, on a person's behalf. And that information will happen to reveal which cell tower was used, which gives a rough uh, information about location. But that information about how the communication was delivered, the metadata, not the contents of the call, but the third party business record is the business record of the company. And so I think should not be protected under the Fourth Amendment as it, it never has been. This, this rule that metadata of, of communications is not protected really goes back to the first main for, big Fourth Amendment case, Ex parte Jackson in the 19th century, dealing with the post uh, postal communications, was adopted again in Smith versus Maryland in 1979 for telephone calls. So this is the traditional Fourth Amendment rule. You can't disclose information to somebody and then expect the Fourth Amendment to act as kind of a non-disclosure rule, limiting when the government can get access to that information. The government can issue subpoenas saying, testify about what you know. They can do that to the phone company here under the Stored Communications Act, which requires this higher court order. And I think that, that statutory approach is the correct one. Uh, uh, and, and, and that regime should not be defeated under the Fourth Amendment. 
Great, thanks for setting us off uh, so well. So Alex Oren just made a bunch of important points. First, it sounds like you guys have a big disagreement about the facts. In your brief, you say it's not just uh, and that you can see what neighborhood someone was in, but this technology is evolving in a way that cell phone uh, pinging will reveal not only within 50 meters, but soon uh, underground in the New York subways and the time that you're attending a particular political rally. So you say in your brief that it really is more like a GPS device than uh, a, a, a telephone. And then you say that this whole application of the third party doctrine to a world where you can reconstruct someone's movement so granularly should be reconsidered as Justice Sonia Sotomayor said in her concurring opinion in the Jones case. So tell us about both of those. Yeah, absolutely. And let me start, too, the same way Oren did, by just thanking you, Jeff, and thanking Oren. It's a, a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, so let me start with the facts and then get into, there's a lot to respond to what Oren said. So uh, yes, that's right. This technology is evolving in such a way that uh, the facts of Carpenter itself are somewhat irrelevant to the broader debate, because uh, the cell site location information, which is what is at issue in Carpenter, already today is significantly more granular in detail in most uh, major metropolitan areas than the information that was available to uh, the state in Carpenter. Um, and, but even with respect to Carpenter, you know, Orrin, it, it is true that individual pixels of cell site location information do not individually reveal as granular information as, uh, you know, the Carpenter brief suggests, the, you know, the brief on behalf of Carpenter. Uh, but when you set those pixels next to each other, as our brief explains, which is on behalf of technical experts, uh, the, the ambiguity, uh, the resolution gets higher and the ambiguity gets lower uh, because you learn more by placing them next to each other. But in some, in some ways, that's, I think, irrelevant to the broader debate uh, because this case isn't really about whether uh, less granular information or more granular information is protected by the Fourth Amendment. It is really whether the Fourth Amendment has anything at all to say about the collection uh, of information that is stored on the parties, uh, the, the servers of third parties. Really, whether the Fourth Amendment has anything to say about uh, modern surveillance, digital surveillance that relies, by and large, on information stored in the possession of third parties. And so uh, it's a bit of a red herring to say, you know, to fight about the granularity of the information in Carpenter, because if the theory that the government is advancing in that case, uh, or Orange theory, were accepted by a court, then all of those considerations would be irrelevant. Uh, it wouldn't matter if the information were extremely granular, if it revealed exactly where you were every second of every day uh, of every week uh, in the year. Uh, it wouldn't matter uh, if the government knew every single person with whom you corresponded by the metadata in your email. It wouldn't matter if they were able to connect that to every credit card transaction you ever made going back in perpetuity. It wouldn't matter if they also had the same records of every one of your associates and so could build a social map of, of, uh, of your world and understand exactly the way you're communicating. None of that would matter under the third party doctrine theory because that theory holds that by the simple fact of providing that information to uh, uh, the social media companies, to our email providers, to our telephone companies, to our credit card companies, all of a sudden becomes unprotected by the Fourth Amendment. And that doctrine did, for some time, provide, I think, a useful approximation of privacy in the analog world. Uh, it, 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 I think, was, by and large, a, an accurate uh, approximation of what people expected and what was reasonable for people to expect in terms of their privacy in uh, the analog world. But I think that uh, there, there are two problems with that. Uh, First is that the doctrine came with a shelf life. Uh, the Supreme Court was never fully committed to the logical extremes of the third party doctrine. And we know this because in 1983, in one of the important cases uh, relevant to this, in a case called Knotts, the Supreme Court said, uh, 
people don't have an expectation of privacy in their movements in public, and so the government can monitor somebody's movements in public. Uh, and, the, and the Supreme Court said, the petitioner in this case doesn't actually quibble with that premise. What the petitioner is worried about is that if we approve that rule, the government will start to engage in 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week surveillance of U.S. citizens. And the court carved off that question. It said, when the government starts doing that, and it called it, I think, dragnet-type surveillance, uh, then there will be time enough to re-examine the constitutional principles that apply. And that time is now. Uh, because to extend the third-party doctrine to the digital world would be to render the Fourth Amendment a dead letter for most of the surveillance that matters uh, today. Uh, the, the world that is not connected to the internet is shrinking. Uh, and that is the world in which uh, the third-party doctrine would confine the Fourth Amendment to this increasingly shrinking world of uh, you know, physical surveillance uh, and then some amorphous category of content surveillance online. Uh, and I don't think that's the role that the Fourth Amendment was meant to play. I think, it was, I think it had higher reaches than that. And I think it has always been meant to be responsive. And one example of that is the Supreme Court's decision in Riley, the one that you mentioned, Jeff. Um, that case, like this one, involved an argument being made. Uh, and I actually don't know, Warren, if you submitted a brief in that case. Um, but, but the government, that case involved a search incident to arrest. And there's long been an exception to the warrant requirement for searches incident to arrest. If the government arrests you, it can search what's on you physically. Uh, and in that case, what was on Riley physically was a cell phone, a smartphone that had a lot of information on it. Uh, and the government argued, that's no different. The search incident to arrest doctrine says we can search that cell phone because it is physically on his person. And as uh, Jeff said, a unanimous Supreme Court rejected that, um, not because the logic of that doctrine didn't apply, uh, but because applying it to the digital context was such a radically different factual foundation that you had to re-examine first principles. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said that any extension of the doctrine, which was articulated in cases like Schimel and Robinson, had to rest on its own bottom. I think that was a phrase that he used. Um, and I think the same is true today. Uh, I think it's not enough to say that the third party doctrine exists. We should apply it to uh, digital records. I think we have to understand the importance of the Fourth Amendment and see whether it uh, is consistent with an application of that doctrine to digital records. And I don't think that it is. Great. Well, we have a firm disagreement about whether or not to apply this third-party doctrine to a digital world or not. And before we talk about the alternatives, let, Oren, let's just talk about how this Supreme Court is likely to approach this case. In the Jones case, uh, Justice Alito said that you don't need physical trespass to trigger the Fourth Amendment when you have an electronic search that reveals a lot about us over a long period of time. And he was joined, apparently, by, let's say, five justices, if you count uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Justice Scalia said you need physical trespass, and Alito said it doesn't make sense to focus on trespass because you could get the same amount of information from the guy's geolocational records. So just applying the Alito concurrence, which was based on the idea that by putting a lot of information together, you can reveal a lot about us, would that not lead to, or would that or would it not lead to a victory uh, for Carpenter? And how much does the granularity of the information uh, affect your answer to that question? Yeah, so um, I think it's really hard to predict what the Supreme Court's going to actually do in, in the Carpenter case. And the problem is all of the precedents that have come up before, and there's only a few, um, there, Jones and Riley are the recent cases, Quan, if you want to go back, although that didn't hold very much. Uh, uh, 
there are lots of ways to distinguish those cases, and it's kind of unclear how the justices are going to react to uh, efforts to draw those similarities. And the third-party doctrine and undercover cases uh, on which the traditional doctrine is based all predate the arrival of the current set of justices. So none of them have ever ruled on a third-party doctrine case before, uh, and we, it's just really hard to predict what they might do. Uh, in terms of the Jones concurring opinions, this is what Carpenter really rests his case on the, uh, the mosaic theory, the idea that short-term obtaining records is okay, short-term surveillance is okay, but at some unidentified point, you get so much information that it sort of it sort of retroactively all becomes a search in the collective, um, which I think is a pretty novel and radical idea. The court has never adopted that view as a majority. Um, will it? I mean, it, it's certainly possible that, that this will happen. There are lots of major problems with actually trying to uh, adopt that theory, like how long is long-term enough? How do you measure the aggregation? What techniques uh, are, are aggregated? How do you do multiple techniques? What if it's multiple investigations? Any effort to try to implement this theory, I think, is ultimately doomed because there are so many questions that would come up. You'd need a full-time Supreme Court only answering how to implement the mosaic theory, which would essentially lead them to draft a statute regulating long-term surveillance, which is what Congress has already done. So uh, I, I think this really is a classic, quintessentially legislative role of trying to draw these lines uh, that Carpenter thinks the court should draw, although interestingly, Carpenter refuses to say what those lines should be. Carpenter just says, in, in future cases, there will be opportunities to draw the line. <laughs> sort of like, don't worry about how to implement this approach. Punt that to some future case. Give me a victory here, and you all can figure out the headaches down the road. I think if you've tried to figure out the headaches now, you realize this short-term, long-term distinction just is not going to work. In terms of how to apply the, the opinions on their face, it's tricky because uh, Alito's view in Jones was premised on the absence of legislative regulation. He says, we really want legislatures to solve these sorts of problems, but in the absence of legislation, this is what we're going to do. Uh, and he comes back to this in his concurring opinion in Riley, where he says that if there were legislation uh, governing search incident to arrest, he would defer to the legislation and not, not use the Fourth Amendment to, to reach that result. I think there are problems with linking the constitutional rule to the statutory rule, but if you take that idea seriously, the answer in Carpenter should be that the mosaic approach doesn't apply because Congress has regulated under the Stored Communications Act. I think there are problems with that, but I think there are problems with the mosaic approach too. Um, so so um, it's really, I, I think, ultimately difficult to say where the different votes are going to go. It's just too hard to predict. Great, Alex. Your thought on how the court is going to go, and Oren just made two important points. One, that the mosaic uh, theory is really hard to apply. It's hard to draw the line. And Alito, Justice Alito and the late Justice Scalia had a debate in Jones about where to draw the line. And Justice Alito said if the, the police aren't sure, they should just get a warrant. And second, he says that Congress has legislated here, unlike in Jones, and therefore Justice Alito might change his vote. What do you think? Yeah, well, let me start with, take those backwards. So Congress legislated in 1986. I don't think, um, I'm not sure there's any dispute in the briefing in the case that Congress didn't have cell site location information in mind when it enacted the statute in 1986, and that the technology was radically different back then. So I think it'd be a mistake to think that Congress has tried to address these questions. But the, the first question, I think, is, is the critical one. And I think the government's strongest uh, argument, and I think Oren's strongest argument, is that it is going to be messy to apply uh, a, a rule that is not as bright as the third-party doctrine. Uh, but that shouldn't be surprising. Uh, it, the reality is that analog-era Fourth Amendment law is every bit the maze that uh, a world without the third-party doctrine would be. Um, if you studied it, you know that there 
uh, are, are conflicting and complicated rules. There are exceptions to those rules. There are exceptions to those exceptions. And there are even cases where the courts just engage in straightforward balancing of interests uh, rather than appeal to some bright line rule. Um, and the result is that you have the same sorts of questions that Oren raises with respect to uh, the mosaic theory you could raise about traditional analog uh, era cases. Uh, if the government asks for your consent to search your house, the, the government is generally fine. What about a roommate? What if, the, what if they think that person is a roommate, but the person is not in fact a roommate? What if it's shared custody? Um, can the government uh, uh, you know, erect a, uh, a, a drug checkpoint on the roads? Does it matter if it's roving or stationary? Does it matter if you have the opportunity to avoid the checkpoint? Uh, if they stop your car, can they search your glove compartment? What, if, uh, what about the trunk? What if the trunk is locked? If it takes long enough, can they wait for a canine uh, unit to come and sniff the trunk to see if there are drugs there? Um, if it doesn't take long enough, can they force you to remain nonetheless? Can they collect the DNA of, of, of convicts? What about arrestees? What about of arrestees of you know, serious crimes? I mean, these are the questions of the Fourth Amendment, and they are all hard. Um, and uh, you know, Oren is proof in point. O Oren has, one of the reasons his career has been so successful is because of how complicated the doctrine is, and he has spent it trying to unravel the maze. And so the reality is that we may need to replace some of the maze that we currently have with a new maze. And I think it's worth it. Uh, it's worth it because the alternative, uh, a bright line rule that has little relationship to what people actually expect and little factual foundation in modern realities of surveillance, would leave entirely unprotected uh, the vast majority of information that people care about today. And, I, and I don't, again, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's consistent with um, the command of the Fourth Amendment, which again isn't the third party doctrine. The command of the Fourth Amendment is unreasonable searches or seizures. Um, and the final point is, I don't, I don't think it would be even as hard as all of that, because I think Oren is right that at the end of the day, uh, uh, Congress would pass a statute, and I think that's fine. Uh, it turns out that there are a number of contexts where the Supreme Court will rule in a Fourth Amendment case. Um, Congress will realize that the resulting rules will take a long time to develop, and they want more certainty faster, and so they legislate. The classic example is Title III, the wiretapping statute. Uh, in, a, in a couple of cases, the Supreme Court in, I think, 1967, invalidated warrantless wiretapping. This is the famous Katz case. Uh, that same year, I believe, they invalidated New York State's specific wiretapping statute in a case called Berger versus New York. Uh, and within six months, Congress had legislated and created Title III, seven months maybe. Um, and that was the model. And the same happened with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, in, in 72, there was a seminal Supreme Court case invalidating warrantless wiretapping for the purpose of uh, certain forms of national security surveillance. Congress uh, kind of indirectly responded a few years later with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which is even more complicated than Title III. Um, and I think the same thing would likely happen here, and I think that's probably the right result. And that's not to say, to admit that Congress should have some role is not to say that, that the courts are, you know, shouldn't have any role. Uh, the role of courts, I think, when it comes to constitutional amendments is to, uh, is to ensure that there is a floor. Um, and I think courts are well within their uh, judicial role to say the floor that Congress has currently set up, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986, the one that says uh, you can get this order on a showing of specific and articulable facts to show that the, the evidence is material. Um, and by the way, location information will be material in the vast majority of cases. Um, I think it's up to. I think it's fine for courts to say that floor is too low. That's below the constitutional floor. In reality, it's somewhere higher, and we're not going to tell you exactly where it is right now. We'll give you a chance to legislate, and we'll decide 
uh, over time, if we're forced to, what the rules are in exactly the same way we've done with the rest of thorny Fourth Amendment doctrine. Great. Um, Orrin, I want to understand if there are any limits on your powerful argument in your brief that uh, we should not have constitutional protection against observation in public, even when it's technologically enhanced. Could the government fly a tiny drone in the air with a camera and fix it over someone, say me, and follow me from door to door 24-7, uh, reconstructing all of my movements in public for a month without a warrant? Yeah, so the, the, let me give the traditional boring doctrinal answer to that, to that question. Um, I know doctrine is something we shouldn't be talking about here. We're all very grand principles about the role of the courts and all the kind of stuff. But uh, the, the doctrinal answer would be uh, the government is allowed to monitor somebody from public airspace uh, as long as they're not breaking into someone's property by, by going below public airspace. And that uh, whether it's long-term tracking or short-term tracking doesn't traditionally make the difference. Uh, and so they would be allowed to monitor from public space and, and follow someone. Uh, and that would not be a for it wouldn't at some point become a Fourth Amendment search. Uh, and um, I think that's I think that's a, a as a Fourth Amendment rule, that's an understandable, coherent Fourth Amendment rule. Uh, you'd want to have statutes that limit the government's ability to do this. And I think you know the, the fact that we're having this debate and that Carpenter is a high profile case shows to my mind how uh, the legislatures are ultimately the right institutions of government to be grappling with this because when we talk about, uh, the, you know, what privacy rules there should be. It's like, well, people demand privacy in this. It's like, well, we, we have a, a, a body of government under the Constitution that is designed to reflect what the people want in terms of, uh, 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 in terms of limits on government. And that's, that's Congress is designed to reflect public opinion on, on what limits they might want. And the Constitution is a floor, but it's not everything. And so I think that traditional approach where I would, I would say there's no kind of Point where you know after you know 29 days is okay, but once you get to 30 days, uh, a switch is turned and that that becomes all a retroactive search. I would I would reject that idea and say that as long as they're in public airspace, it's not a Fourth Amendment search, but something that should be regulated by statute. Great, a very clear and understandable answer from Oren. Alex, uh, do you think that th uh, the Constitution would allow 24-7 ubiquitous tracking of our movements in public? Justice Sotomayor, in her concurrence, said if the answer is yes, then we have no privacy in an age when all of our data is stored on third-party servers and when the government can reconstruct our movements. And I, I know you think the answer is no. If you were writing the opinion you know, for, by Justice Sotomayor or Justice Alito, uh, what would the constitutional argument against that kind of ubiquitous surveillance in public be? Yeah, I mean, so I, I would approach, and this, this is, you know, will frustrate Orrin to hear me say this, but it won't surprise him. Um, I, I, would address, I would answer the question narrowly. I would say absolutely, uh, long-term, ubiquitous surveillance of individuals is, is an unreasonable search or seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Um, and I might, I might say, you know, beyond a certain number of days, um, but at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I think Orrin is right that legislatures will have an easier time figuring out uh, what a reasonable balance is. But to say that doesn't mean that constitutional rights which are meant as bulwarks against majoritarian rule should be ceded entirely to majoritarian rule. I don't think that's the purpose of the Bill of Rights, and I think it would be inconsistent, because while maybe this Congress uh, or some other Congress might one day choose to reform the Electronic Communications, uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act, it hasn't for 31 years. Uh, and even very, I think, modest reform measures in the past few years, ones that would, for example, make clear that your email is protected by a warrant, uh, haven't been enacted. Um, and so 
I would approach it cautiously from the Supreme Court. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to uh, articulate some grand vision of what is reasonable and what is not reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, in part because I think uh, as elegant as it might be to have that sort of solution, I don't think that reflects the reality of privacy and the reasonableness inquiry on the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I think the, and, and you have that proof in the doctrine already. And just to complicate Orrin's answer a little bit, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you know this doctrine much better than I do, I believe the Supreme Court has only said that that form of aerial surveillance is constitutional um, on the, uh, if it's above 1,000 feet, which is the Cirolo case. Um, I think that was the factual presentation there. And the Supreme Court, several times, every time it articulated the rule, mentioned that the plane was flying at 1,000 feet and no lower. Whether that matters or not to the doctrine, we don't know, because I don't think the Supreme Court has had another case, unless I'm wrong, um, about whether 500 feet is, enough, is OK or whether 10 feet is fine. Um, uh, so that's how I would approach it. And can I say, one other thing, too. Um, so you know, I haven't responded to something Orrin said a couple times, which you asked about, uh, Jeff, which is this, this question of the eyewitness rule. Um, and one thing I'd be interested to hear your response to, Orrin, is I think it's tempting to think that this eyewitness rule, the idea that if there's somebody who the government could subpoena to testify, then you can't have an expectation of privacy in that. I think that's a, roughly the, the eyewitness rule. Um, your, in your brief, you say that that would preserve the traditional inside the envelope, outside the envelope distinction. And I'm not sure that's true. Email, I don't think, is generally limited in who can read it to the sender and the recipient. Uh, when you send an email over Gmail, you understand through the terms of service. You probably don't. You may not have read the terms of service. Most people haven't read the terms of service. Um, uh, whether that matters or not, I guess, is another question. Uh, but you, you are at least on constructive notice that Gmail reserves the right and does, in fact, scan your email for spam. It scans it for child pornography. It scans it for malware. When it gets to the other end, it scans it for all sorts of reasons to present it more usefully to the user. It scans it to see whether there is a travel reservation inside, and so it adds it to the person's calendar automatically. It scans it to see whether there's contact information that should be added to the contact list. Uh, it's, it scans it to see whether it's important and in line with things that you have read a lot before or the sort of thing that you typically delete right away. And then it shows it either in the high priority section or the low priority section. Um, that kind of review, I think, is inconsistent with um, with what you say in your brief that email, you know, under the third, you know, the eyewitness rule would be uh, would fall clearly uh, uh, on the inside the envelope part of the theory. But maybe I'm. I'd love to hear your if Jeff if Jeff allows. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I allow, but I want to, uh, uh, in addition to answering Alex's question, answer the this broader question. Um, you uh, gave a clear answer. It's up to legislatures. Um, what is your response to the claim that legislatures have not and are unlikely to regulate in this space? There's been a geolocational privacy bill co-sponsored by uh, Republicans and Democrats on the books for years that hasn't passed. And uh, what should we make about, given the fact that when I ask groups whether they think that tracking someone's movements 24-7 in public with drone cameras violates the Fourth Amendment, the answers are overwhelmingly yes. And I won't poll this group well, what the heck? We can have real-time polls in the middle of this discussion. Who believes that the hypothetical I posed to Oren, where the government would track our movements 24-7 in public for a month using drone cameras, would violate the Fourth Amendment? And who can I ask a follow-up question? Let's have the, and who believes it would not? And yes, can I ask yes, a follow-up question for please. those that raised your hand the first time? How many of you think that Congress should enact a rule limiting that? 
Oh, come on. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. And, and okay. But that's not inconsistent, is it? Okay. So, so the, the, the point of this exchange is many people think Congress should, but it hasn't and may not, and yet most people think it violates the Fourth Amendment. So what's the Supreme Court supposed to do about that? Right. So let me, let me first talk about what it means to meaningfully uh, uh, legislate. So this is Carpenter just filed uh, the reply brief, I think, yesterday. Uh, and Carpenter says, well, yeah, Congress has, Congress has had lots of hearings on this question. And sure, in 1994, they enacted the specific and articulable facts standard. And yeah, a lot of state legislatures have enacted warrant requirements. But there hasn't been a meaningful legislation. Now, what is meaningful? I assume meaningful means enact the rule I want. And then there is meaningful <laughs> legislation. Uh, I, I don't think it can be the rule that if you don't enact the rule the person wants, Congress is not meaningfully engaged. Uh, you know, this is something where it's a 1994 statute that enacted this standard. Congress has had five hearings on it. Uh, uh, Representative Goodlatte, chair of the Judiciary Committee, has promised more action on this. I mean, it's Congress, so you never know what they're actually going to do. But there's a lot of state activity going on. Um, California enacted Cal-ECPA, the California Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the most far-reaching statutory privacy law uh, ever enacted for electronic or digital uh, uh, communications. Very broad warrant requirements. Uh, and so, very. This is a, a, a statute that goes very, very far in, in enacting warrant requirements for almost everything except for basic subscriber information. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe that's not a good idea. But there's a lot of legislative activity going on in this area. So I don't think it's. I think it's wrong to say. Well, I don't see Congress has not actually enacted the law I want. Therefore, Congress is not meaningfully engaged. And, and with respect to drones, I think in the last. Um, I looked at this a year ago. In, I think, 2015, I think nine states had enacted drone legislation of some kind. Uh, so this is something that at the state level, the states are worried about and are enacting rules on, and, and good for them. I mean, I think, I think that's something that uh, legislature should ha have rules on. So I, I think it's really important to, to not sort of say, just because I don't see the rule I want, and therefore Congress isn't doing the job. They're actually, I think, doing, doing uh, a lot, and state legislatures too. Um, on the question that Alex raised about uh, content versus non-content information, so let me step back a little bit. Uh, uh, my view that the legislature should take the role with respect to non-content information would be contrasted with the idea that I think the Fourth Amendment protects contents of communication. So the Fourth Amendment protects the contents of your emails that are remotely stored with service providers. It protects uh, the contents of your text messages as they're traveling. Uh, and what is contents, the, the cases on this, uh, there was a recent Third Circuit case suggesting, for example, that uh, when you search the web, uh, everything beyond the .com part, so everything beyond the domain name, is uh, contents of your communication. You're sending a request for a specific web page, and that's a message you're sending to the server, give me a particular web page. That would count as contents. Under my view, that would all be protected under the Fourth Amendment by a warrant requirement. Uh, the difference, as I see it, is that it's basically a reconstruction of the traditional Fourth Amendment rule that you have privacy protection uh, in your home, uh, in your inside spaces, as applied to the network environment. So the way I think of it is that in the Fourth Amendment world without networks, you have Fourth Amendment protection inside your home. You don't have protection outside. And when you hire a network provider, whether it's a cell phone provider, or an email provider, or the post service, postal service, um, you're basically saying, OK, instead of me having to go out into the world, I'm going to hire somebody else to deliver this communication for me. And that equivalent network information of what would have been publicly observable uh, 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 stuff, like I left my house, went to a particular place to deliver my communication or to have my conversation at my friend's house, the fact that I left my house, the, the fact that a, 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 the travel 
travel was made, that would traditionally be exposed uh, and available and therefore not protected under the Fourth Amendment. The actual contents of my communication inside my house would be protected. So as I see it, the content, non-content distinction, which happens to have been, been adopted in cases like Katz and Smith versus Maryland, is accurately reconstructing that traditional inside-outside distinction from the physical world uh, for a network environment, and therefore is this kind of technologically neutral principle which can apply uh, in the internet. And it would mean, it's not that, you know, go online, you have no Fourth Amendment rights, it's go online, you have Fourth Amendment rights in the contents of your communications, but the rules governing access to your non-content records would be statutory and not constitutional. That would be my approach. Great. Alex, much of this discussion is a, is a debate about how to translate the Constitution in light of new technologies. And one of the great opinions about constitutional translation of the Fourth Amendment came from Justice Louis Brandeis in the Olmstead case involving wiretapping in 1928. And in that decision, Brandeis seemed to look forward to this case that we're talking about today, to an age of cloud computing. And he said prophetically, ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding into desk drawers to extract secret papers and introduce them in court. And then he said advances in the psychic and related sciences may make it possible for the government to reveal unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions. Brandeis's concerns have come true if the court refuses to translate the Fourth Amendment to restrict this kind of surveillance in public. Tell us about what the consequences would be, what would the government be able to seize, and what would Brandeis think? Yeah, I, I think he would be very vindicated. Uh, and you know, the consequence is that the litany of things I tried to use to scare everyone earlier w would be the sorts of things that the government could collect. It, it could collect virtually every piece of digital metadata trail that you leave. Um, you, you are all now carrying very sophisticated tracking devices in your, in your pockets or in your um, purses, and those reveal a lot of information about you, including health-related information, location information, uh, who you're associating with. Uh, and it's important to understand that the analysis of the information is getting very, very powerful. Um, you know, the government, it's not just that the government knows that you're here, it knows that you're here, or could know that you're here with other people. It's not just that it knows you're at a particular house, it's that it knows who else is at that house, at what times of day. Um, uh, and it's not just that it knows you placed a call to somebody, it knows when you placed that call, how many times before you've placed that call, who that other person has called. All that information uh, would be available to the government. And I think, that, I think all of that is relevant to the question of whether the search is reasonable. Um, you know, it's, it's not true that Fourth Amendment doctrine has been concerned solely with the places of surveillance. Uh, it has also been concerned with the sensitivity of the, of the information revealed. Um, and there are two axes, and some, one, one of those axes is often more relevant than the other, depending on the, on the form of surveillance. But the court has been concerned about both. There's no other way to understand Riley. Riley was not a case. This is the, the search of a cell phone incident to arrest. Riley was not a case where the court said, uh, where it would focus on the first of those questions. It didn't carve out cell phones uh, uh, as being unique physically, that they were a unique physical space. Uh, they were different from uh, a billfold or a packet of cigarettes because of the sensitivity of the information that people store on them. I don't think there's any other way of understanding that. And I think email and even phone communications are the same way. Uh, you know, you reveal that information. You reveal your email to Gmail every time you send that email, uh, whether you like it or not. That's, a, that's an incident to using the technology. Uh, and uh, we can come up with ways of distinguishing that through some you know, inside the envelope, outside the envelope analogy, but the truth is the analogy isn't perfect. 
Um, and th the real test of an analogy is not in its similarities, but in its dissimilarities. Uh, and modern day surveillance is just fundamentally dissimilar from uh, the form of physical surveillance that the third party doctrine was meant to, to regulate. Um, re response, Oren, and, and this gets to a debate between Justice Alito and Justice uh, Scalia in the Jones oral arguments. Uh, Justice uh, Scalia said, we have to ask what the framers thought. And Alito said, they didn't think about GPS surveillance. And Justice Scalia said, ah, but there's an analog you could have at the time of the framing a tiny constable uh, spirited under a carriage and eavesdropping on the conversations. And Alito said, said that you need a thousand constables to get the coverage of a single GPS device. They'd have to be very small constables or a very large carriage. So Alito and, uh, and, uh, and Alex and Justice Brandeis are saying that when electronic surveillance can reveal even more about us than the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution, then the warrant requirement should be triggered and existing doctrine should be reconsidered. Response. Okay, let me uh, go back to Brandeis because you mentioned Brandeis's dissent in Olmstead. Uh, if I recall correctly, there were two different parts of Brandeis's Olmstead uh, dissent. One, nobody talks about. The other, everybody talks about. Everybody talks about the Fourth Amendment part where Brandeis says wherever there is an invasion of privacy, it should, uh, it should be prohibited by the Fourth Amendment. And at the time, there would have been no warrant that could have been obtained because the um, communications the, uh, that were wiretapped would have been mere evidence. And therefore, the government would have just been, basically, if it's on a phone call, you have sort of a fundamental right to have a phone call without the government listening in, no warrants, total protection. That was Brandeis's view um, on the Fourth Amendment part. The other part of Brandeis's opinion was about the Washington state wiretapping law, a statute. Uh, and the other argument in, in, in the Olmstead case was that uh, the Washington state wiretapping law was violated by the federal prohibition agents, and there should be a suppression remedy for violating the statute. And Brandeis argued that uh, there should be uh, a, a suppression remedy for violating the statute. And Holmes's dissent uh, focused on that part. Uh, if I recall correctly, he didn't touch the Fourth Amendment. He only talked about the statutory issue. Now, we can talk about whether the statutory analysis is right or wrong, but I think the key lesson there is that even in the Olmstead era, this was something that was proceeding uh, both as a matter of statutory law and as a matter of constitutional law. And trying to figure out the, the role of those two different branches was, was a theme even, even at the time. Um, and and the, 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 remind me of the second question, the, the, new, the new question. Well, the new, the, new, the new question is everyone thinks when you are revealing even more information than the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution, you've got a Fourth Amendment problem, don't you? Yeah, so, so I think um, the general warrants, general warrants were about breaking into private spaces like homes and offices, and how broadly should the judicial authorization be with respect to breaking into those private spaces. Here we're not talking about breaking into those private spaces. So uh, there's no need for a warrant under the traditional Fourth Amendment view, so there's no question as to what is a general warrant. Uh, the Fourth Amendment did not say the government can't look all around to see where there's evidence of crime. They can't, you know, they should only walk down a street, they can't walk down two streets, all that kind of stuff. That's and that's not something the Fourth Amendment has traditionally regulated. I think the big moment of misunderstanding is in the Katz case, and in particular Justice Harlan's concurring opinion, which, which uh, unfortunately Justice Harlan didn't 
you add the citations he needed to. Uh, he says in the opinion, here's my understanding of the rule that has emerged from past decisions. Searches require two things. And what are those two things? Well, it needs to be a space that is protectable under the Fourth Amendment. And there have been a lot of cases as to what spaces were protectable. Homes were protectable. Open fields were not protectable. And, and the Katz case had said that a phone booth was a protectable space. And so that's, you know, Harlan describes this as being, well, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. Sort of, I think of that as being it's sort of home-like or uh, something that is that person's stuff, at least when they go into the phone booth and close the door and, and put in the coin, as, as Harlan puts it. And the other is that uh, you need to uh, manifest a subjective expectation of privacy. You need to exhibit a subjective expectation of privacy. And it's unfortunate that Harlan didn't include citations to that. If you, if you were in 1967, you would know what that meant if you were familiar with the Fourth Amendment cases at the time, because in the preceding five years, the court had decided something like seven or eight cases involving undercover agents or contexts where uh, a person said something where others could hear it and then the court said, well, if you said it where other people could hear it, you have no Fourth Amendment rights. I think the, uh, that uh, uh, exhibiting a subjective expectation of privacy, that language, was not about kind of actually expecting privacy. It was about, did you disclose the information in a context where others could hear it from a protected space? Uh, and if that's right, this whole idea of you know, reasonable expectations of privacy, that was really just Harlan's way of describing what are the physical spaces that are home-like enough or sufficiently uh, 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 private as spaces where we should say somebody has Fourth Amendment rights in that space. So phone booths count, homes count, uh, trunks of cars, cabs count. Those are what the prior cases had said. But open fields don't. And this is an open fields case. So I think under the Harlan approach, the answer should be this is not something the Fourth Amendment uh, does. What's unfortunate is that the way Harlan phrased it, you know, expectation of privacy society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, that can be read out of context, and I think unfortunately has been read by some courts, as sort of a free form like, I don't know, you seem like a reasonable person. Do you expect privacy in that? And then it sort of becomes this really vague, sort of meaningless, how do you feel question. And I don't think that's what Harlan had in mind. I don't think that's what the Fourth Amendment is dealing with. Uh, and so I, I think that the reason we're asking these questions, some of these questions, um, if you look at the Harlan concurrence out of context, you see, oh, that seems to be the question. I think if you understand it in historical context, the Fourth Amendment is not supposed to be this sort of free form, what do you feel, what are your expectations, you seem reasonable kind of inquiry. And that, that is what has caused a lot of uncertainty um, from the Katz case going forward. Great. So Alex Orrin has said something important, which is that this test that he just mentioned, which has been the cornerstone of Fourth Amendment law since the 1960s, uh, suggests that Carpenter should lose. Because if the question is, uh, is uh, a public space one where people uh, subjectively uh, should expect privacy, Oren says no. And your side says, well, that means that the test itself is circular. Because in a world where the government can just say, we're going to surveil you in public, people's expectations go down and surveillance in public is unlimited. So does the court have to reconsider the subjective expectation of privacy test in order for you to win? I don't think that it does. You know, the Supreme Court has recognized the circularity of that test before. And there was an important footnote, I believe, in Harlan's opinion, recognizing that there was a kind of normative uh, safeguard against that sort of circularity, uh, that if the government tried to shift societal expectations of privacy by one day flipping on the surveillance state, that wasn't, gonna, that wasn't going to change the analysis. Uh, but more broadly, I think I, I think I disagree with the idea that the Fourth Amendment was meant to be uh, 
something where there was you know a small uh, a small handful of bright line rules that define privacy. Uh, if that were the case, I don't think they would have used the word unreasonable. Um, I, I think that does invite the very sort of uh, what may seem frustratingly free form inquiry into what is reasonable. Um, but, I, but I think that's what the Fourth Amendment was, was meant to do, to respond to the threats to privacy that are you know, uh, endemic to our time, not to set in stone expectations of privacy based on technology that were, were developed a long time ago. And to, you know, to give one kind of concrete example of how it can be very hard to draw these lines. So Oren earlier mentioned the distinction between the domain of the website you visit and the specific page. So the New York Times's page generally versus you know, the story on the Steele dossier. Uh, and even then, it's hard to draw a distinction between the two. Because if you think that the government is allowed to sit in the position of a network observer, which is the phrase Oren, I think, used in your, in your brief, right? If you think the government is entitled to sit in that position, one thing it will learn about the page that you visit on the New York Times site is, is its exact size, right? It can watch the packets come to your computer. Uh, and tell you the size. And it turns out that most subpages to a, of a, a web page are relatively unique in their size. Uh, and the government can make very powerful inferences about what exactly you're reading on the New York Times' site. And that's on the basis of metadata. Um, and so that's the fundamental breakdown. Metadata now, due to the nature of technology and the nature of the government's analytic capabilities, reveals the sort of information that Oren calls content and that I think the founders would have said are the things that they want protected. Um, and I think that's the reality we need to deal with and why, uh, you know, why a, a kind of rigid application of the third party doctrine without re-examining what we're trying to protect doesn't make sense. Oren, uh, on the third party doctrine, uh, the guy who argued the case, Smith versus Maryland, has said that he thinks it should not apply in this case. I know this because I was giving a privacy talk in upstate New York and talking about Smith v. Maryland, and someone in the fr front row stood up and said, I argued Smith v. Maryland. I think it shouldn't apply to this Steve, Carpenter uh, case. Yeah. He's a partner at Wilmer. Yeah, former yeah, uh, attorney general, yeah. yeah. And his, his uh, reasoning was, I was talking about bank records or, 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 or phone records that you knowingly turn over. The quantum of this information is so great that we're really somewhere else. And Justice Sotomayor said the same thing. Um, uh, I understand your practical concerns about coming up with an alternative, but what do you say to people like the guy who argued Smith v. Maryland who said that it, it shouldn't apply when you're revealing so much information about our movements? Yeah, so I think it's hard to come up with a constitutional rule that says, you can disclose some things, but other things in some undefined way, once you disclose those, then that starts to become a, a search. Which is really hard. These are line drawing exercises uh, which involve, think about this, is a constitutional non-disclosure rule as to when a private party can say something to the government without a warrant. Uh, and so what are those things that the private party can't say and how much of those things and can they say just a few things once you know they, once they start talking after a while maybe a warrant is required it, I, I, it's hard for me to come up with a constitutional rule that regulates that um, we can do it easily through statutes right and that's what the stored communications act does and there are ways we can improve the stored communications act i think to make it more nuanced and and, and improve some of the privacy protections uh, but i i don't see it as something that that you can have a constitutional rule on. And it, I think it's telling that Carpenter's side 
won't come forward and say, what is that proposed rule? They'll just say, this is on one side of the rule, uh, and we don't know what the rule is, but you know, we'll have more cases, and then maybe that we'll figure out what the rules should be. And that, that includes um, academics. And so uh, when Jones came out of the concurring uh, opinions, or came out in 2012, I wrote an article called The Mosaic Theory of the Fourth Amendment, pointing out all the problems, uh, of the line drawing problems of, of you know, how are you going to implement this? And I've whenever I'm at a Fourth Amendment conference, I'm really good fun, um, I'll <laughs> poke people whenever the mosaic theory is mentioned. Yeah, how would you implement it? Hmm. And no and, one and on wants... Twitter. You did on oh, Twitter I'll do it on too. Twitter, too. No one wants to answer <laughs> these questions. Five years later, what the most I will get is um, some people will say, if you gave me funding, I would think of the, what the answer should be. <laughs> but you can't just put me on the spot. That's unfair. Um, and others will say, I don't know. This is academics. I don't know the answer. I'm a law professor who teaches Fourth Amendment law and have for 30 years. I don't know the answer. But judges are very smart people, and they'll figure out <laughs> the answer. And, and, and I'm not saying that the answers have to be right, but there have to be some sort of answers. And the fact that academics are, are, are not eager to offer their own views as to how to implement this theory, to my mind, is, is telling. And, and I also wanted to go back to something that Alex mentioned I think that um, is a good and important point. I mean, the difficulty of distinguishing content and non-content, those lines can be pretty difficult to draw. Uh, in, in my view, that's exactly the same problem you have in the physical world, uh, distinguishing between outside and inside. So breaking into a private space is, uh, is a search under the Fourth Amendment. Observing from outside is not a search. And there are a lot of cases on exactly where the line is between what counts as breaking in and not breaking in. Think of Kylo, the thermal imaging case. Five justices say observing the temperature is like going in. Four justices say, no, that's like being outside. Uh, open fields cases like Dunn, where they have this you know, test to figure out how close do you need to be to the house for it to be inside the curtilage versus open fields. So there's always going to be a close call line drawing uh, in some cases. But I think that's a pretty narrow area of uncertainty. It leaves most cases clear. Uh, and I'm, I'm worried about a Fourth Amendment test, which really just opens everything up to something that even, even the academics can't or aren't, aren't, aren't terribly willing to answer. Great. We have about uh, uh, four more minutes and then closing arguments. Alex, uh, Justice Sotomayor, in the concurring opinion, said, inside, outside makes no sense in a world where we store our private papers not inside in locked desk drawers, but in this in new space called the digital cloud, which is neither inside nor out. But yet, Oren's, and she said, we need an alternative test. And Oren said, no one's come up with an alternative test. So what is your alternative test? You're standing before Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Gorsuch maybe is you know, uh, skeptical because he, he wants a clear test. Answer Oren's question and give the court a test. So, so I, I would do exactly what the lawyers in, the, in Katz uh, and the lawyers in the United States versus US District Court, the Keith case, uh, did then. They would say, they would articulate a constitutional minimum that was sufficient to address the case before the court and leave the rest to further development. And, and one advantage to that. So if, if we were here talking not about uh, this case, but about drug checkpoints and the constitutionality of drug checkpoints, uh, we wouldn't need to answer the half a dozen questions that the Supreme Court has now had to deal with when they first said some form of drug checkpoint is constitutional. Uh, and I think the same is true for uh, for. Uh, uh, metadata. There are different types of metadata that should be protected to different extents. And what the court should be doing is setting constitutional minimums in various circumstances. So for this case, if I were up in front of the court and asked the question, I would say it is sufficient to address this case uh, that the long-term collection uh, violates a reasonable expectation of privacy of these records. 
um, and leave it at that uh, and require the government, at least in these circumstances, to get a warrant. And Congress can further flesh out the rules, and if those rules are largely reasonable, I anticipate courts would affirm them, would they, you know, they uphold them, and that would provide the kind of predictability. In the same way uh, that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act did. You know, nobody, when, when the Keith case was being litigated, had drafted what is now the Byzantine set of rules that govern foreign intelligence surveillance. Um, nobody had in mind, for example, if anyone is familiar with that statute, you can go and look at the definition of what electronic surveillance is. Um, and that alone, just what the statute covers, is a maze. And nobody was having that debate at the time of, of, of Keith. And I think appropriately so. Because I agree with one thing Oren said, which is I don't think it's the role of courts in the first instance, where they first come upon a thorny thicket, to try to articulate every rule that would apply to every circumstance. Um, that, I think, is a kind of, uh, you know, that reflects a kind of judicial maximism, uh, maximalism uh, that would be unproductive in this context. I mean, can I, can I also just respond to one or two of the things Warren said? So I, I think it's, uh, I don't think the rule that the Carpenter uh, uh, lawyers want is one, is a rule against voluntary disclosure, a constitutional rule against voluntary disclosure. I think what they want is a rule against, uh, a constitutional rule against, against warrantless, uh, uh, involuntary, compelled disclosure. Uh, they don't want the government, absent a warrant, to be able to force Verizon to turn over the locations of its uh, of, of people, uh, you know, its users. But if somebody at Verizon had noticed suspicious activity on an account and gone to look at it and had it in their mind uh, and then volunteered that information to the government, absent a statute, that wouldn't trigger uh, you know, any legal prohibition. It certainly wouldn't trigger a Fourth Amendment prohibition. Um, and so I don't think I don't think it's quite as I don't think the, the question is quite what you know the way you're articulating it, Warren. Um, and I had, I had a second point, but I forget what it was. So great, uh, Warren. One more beat to you, and then we're going to have closing arguments. Uh, first, Alex says, um, you know, Google and Microsoft and Apple have joined this case because they don't want to be forced involuntarily to surrender all of the private data in the world that they hold uh, because they think that that would uh, violate privacy. So how much of this case turns for you on the fact that it's geolocational information which is automatically turned over rather than seized? And then you say it should be done by statute. What's the statute, state or federal, that you think best draws the line, and how does that statute draw the line? Great. So uh, to my mind, it's incredibly important. It's basically the case that these are third-party generated business records. These are records that the phone companies have on their own, uh, that they're using for business purposes, and then the government is coming along and saying, give us those records. Uh, very, very different case if we're dealing with a government order uh, to search the phone, to, to grab information from inside the phone, something that the phone company is not otherwise generating. That is that is an entry intru, into the phone, not collecting a third-party business record. So at least ordinarily, I would think that would be uh, a search. Uh, and so, and so um, I, I think that is a, a hugely important distinction. In terms of what statute would be best, I think it's tricky. Um, it would depend a lot about uh, how the technology is changing over time. Uh, I think the 2703D current standard, the specific and articulable fact standard, makes sense for access to historical cell site records, so long as they're pretty general, what neighborhood somebody's in. Uh, you know, the difference between the current statutory standard of probable cause is uh, a difference between the standard that the government would need to temporarily detain somebody versus arrest somebody. So it's reasonable suspicion versus uh, probable cause. It, it, it's a difference. It's not 
the world's most important difference. You know, once the government has some 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 evidence that the records are going to be helpful, you know, it's just a question of how strong is that evidence. What I would do, you know, if in, in the world where I could control what, what Congress did, I think the thing that Congress needs to do and hasn't is, is talk about the particularity of getting the records. So once the government gets the records, how many records can they get becomes a hugely important question. The Historic Communications Act couldn't talk about that, I think, because in the 80s and 90s when it was being drafted, they just didn't, there weren't that many records. So they weren't too worried about, you know, how many records can, can be obtained. Uh, if this field were constitutionalized, if Carp Carpenter is right, either under the current statutory standard or a warrant standard, there would presumably be some Fourth Amendment particularity requirement of how many days' worth of records can there be. I don't know exactly what that, what that would be. But I think as a statutory matter, I, I think Congress should enact something along those lines. Exactly how to do it is complicated. I actually wrote about this in an article. But it's um, particularity would be important, and, and also watching the technology to see how precise the records are, I think, would be important. Great. Well, this has been a superb debate, and it's time for closing arguments. You're standing before the Supreme Court and have three minutes to persuade the justices of your position. Alex, tell the court and the audience why you believe that the warrantless search of Mr. Carpenter's cell phone records for 127 days violates the Fourth Amendment. I think I'll be shorter than three minutes. The Carpenter case presents as clearly as any case has in the Supreme Court, whether the Constitution plays a role in privacy in the digital age, um, or whether instead our right to privacy in the digital age is solely a matter of executive and congressional uh, grace. And I don't think that it is. I think that the Constitution has a role to play. I think courts have an obligation to set a constitutional minimum below which legislatures cannot go in empowering law enforcement agents uh, to spy on everybody in the country. Uh, and while we have some statutory protection now, a rule that says it's not constitutionally compelled would make me very fearful uh, that in the wrong political circumstances, after the wrong set of uh, public crises, those rules would be eroded. Uh, and the government would have not just the statutory authority it has now, but whatever it is able to convince that future Congress of. Uh, and I think. The Constitution was meant to prevent that end. Uh, and I think uh, to ensure that it has a role in doing so, you have to, at the very least, answer the threshold question of whether it applies at all, yes. Uh, and, and the consequences of, of, of a no, I think, are, are too dramatic to allow. Thank you so much for that. Oren, last word to you. Why do you believe that the warrantless search of Mr. Carpenter's cell phone records does not violate the Fourth Amendment? Well, there was no search of his records. That's the simple version. Uh, Third-party business records that are created in the ordinary course of business by a company when you've hired them to deliver your communications, uh, they may keep those records for their business reasons, and the government may access them. But the rules governing access to those records should be statutory, not constitutional. It's not something the courts have ever tried to regulate. And if they do try to regulate it, Nobody, not even Carpenter, can figure out what those rules should be. So the court should allow legislatures to con continue to debate these issues. Maybe we should have the current statute. Maybe there should be a different standard. Maybe there should be different remedies. But that's not up to the judges and the courts. That's something that should really be up to uh, Congress and state legislatures. Superb. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard this magnificent debate. You've heard the best arguments for and against uh, finding a constitutional violation here. I want you now to vote again who, after hearing these arguments with a completely open mind and listening hard to try to educate yourself about the correct answer, believes 
that the warrantless collection of Mr. Carpenter's cell phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And who believes that it does not? And who changed his or her mind? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a superb debate. The next Constitution Center debate is in Chicago on the First Amendment with the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. Let me just say this. It is so important today to bring together the finest minds in the country for civil, engaged disagreement about hard questions. I want to thank you for having turned out to educate yourself. I want to thank FedSoc and ACS for collaborating with the Constitution Center. And most of all, please join me in thanking our debaters. To learn more about this week's topic, visit a thrilling new feature, our podcast resource page at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate forward slash podcast. To help you learn more about this week's topic, you can visit the resource page to explore show notes, guest bios, related interactive Constitution essays, and most important, further reading so you can continue to educate yourself about the Constitution. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for select America's Town Hall programs. And soon you'll be able to get CLE credits by listening to these podcasts themselves. In-person and on-demand credit is now available in Pennsylvania. Additional states will come soon. It's a great opportunity to get credit and continue to educate yourself and will include all sorts of extra features, including the show notes that help me prepare for this podcast. They're invaluable, and I hope that you'll enjoy them. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Also, please be sure to rate our podcast on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do. And finally, and this is important, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. Despite our inspiring congressional charter, we receive little government support and we rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion for lifelong learning and civic education of people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast, and please join the National Constitution Center's family of lifelong learners who are missionaries for constitutional education. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.